good? Oh man, that could be too loud. I blow dry everybody's hair before the time is up ahead. I'm already pretty loud as it stands. But. Yeah, no, thanks so very much for the music. That's so encouraging, such great, such great lyrics and such great tunes. Uh, today I'm going to uh, talk with you a little bit about um, uh, the book of Leviticus, the gospel according to Leviticus. That's right. Leviticus, that, that great New Year's resolution slayer, uh, uh, the... Uh, a uh, great quiet time killer. Uh, the, the, uh, every uh, January, Christians all over the world determine that they will read the Bible through finally this year. And around March, they hit the book of Leviticus, seven chapters of how to kill domestic animals, and um, they, uh, they buckle quite quickly as a general rule and uh, jump to Matthew. I just decide I'm just going to skip to the New Testament, which I think is hilarious since Matthew opens up with a genealogy. Uh, but uh, it's uh, still what they do as a general rule. And I get it. It's not, um, it's not religious literature like we know religious literature. Religious literature today as we know it um, is typically highly experiential. Uh, it tends to move away from serious reflection on, um, on serious matters and hones in just on the practical lives of people and, and, um, and, and then begins to derive God from that. That's not this. Uh, this is pretty common religious literature in this period of time. If we go ahead and give Moses his due and that Moses is, uh, in fact, behind Genesis through Deuteronomy, then this is pretty standard literature all over the ancient Near East. But there are elements about this that are really distinct from its counterparts. And those are the things that really stick out. Those are the things that are the culminating testimony of Moses about these serious issues. And so we'll talk about the God of Israel in Leviticus. So God in Leviticus. We'll talk about Israel in Leviticus. And we'll talk about, um, within Israel, we'll talk about Israel's person, uh, who they are, what they are, as well as their expected response. So we could call it their identity and their mission, their identity and mission. So God and Israel, and with Israel, we'll talk about identity and mission. And then we'll have some concluding remarks to sort of help us understand what this looks like today. Uh, The very first thing and the very most significant thing about Leviticus, believe it or not, uh, is that this is uh, a book that contends that God is generous. God is generous to his people. Generous to his people. That is is stated at uh, the beginning of Leviticus. If you'll look at Leviticus chapter 1 and then go back just one page to Exodus chapter 40. I realize that the, the books and the, the chapters and verses uh, can get in our way sometimes uh, to, to see really how these are connected. But if you go back to chapter 40 and you, of Exodus and you look at verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of the house of Israel throughout its journeys. The Lord 
called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Moses cannot enter into the tabernacle because of the power of the glory of God. And so God calls out to Moses. The entire book of Leviticus is premised on the fact that God wants Israel to worship him. God wants to shape his people in a particular way that reflects the goodness and glory of him. It doesn't matter if Moses can enter the tabernacle anymore. God himself is in the process of revealing himself to Moses and to Israel. And this is significant because that means that everything in the book of Leviticus is trying to portray God in a particular way. Portray him in a way that might be odd to us today in the 21st century, but this book's not written to us. This book is written for us. And this book written to Israel is portraying God in a unique and powerful way to Israel. God's generous in that he wants to reveal himself to Israel. When you talk to people, uh, when I talk to, to people as a general rule about God, it's always striking to me how they like to try to portray God as somehow or another um, unreachable or mysterious and almost Gnostic in the sense that they can't really access him, but somehow or another they, they, uh, you know, they'll, they'll commu- he communicates with them by giving them some sort of a, a strange peace uh, about all the things that they kind of want to do anyway. And, uh, and those, those ideas are, are really interesting. But the fact of the matter is God reveals himself openly, audaciously to his people. And he does so here in Leviticus. I think Leviticus is probably one of the most theologically rich books in the Bible, but not because it does theology like we often think of it. Like, for example, as Christians you know, for the last 2,000 years, we'll say things like, for example, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, on and on and on. We're making propositions. We believe in the Trinity. Propositions. Yeah, if you go to the Nicene Creed. Or any good Protestant worth their salt. It's a, we believe that we are saved solely by grace. Solely by grace, right? by the grace of God, uh, through faith. And, and, uh, and, and so those, those ideas are propositions. Leviticus doesn't provide propositions, and this is what makes it so odd to us, is that what it does, it provides ritual. It provides portraits. Maybe if you, um, uh, for example, it provides like YouTube clips, uh, for example. They're, 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 not, they're not suitable for children, YouTube clips, but there's lots of blood uh, here in a lot of these. But, but, there's, uh, but still, there are YouTube clips all the same. And each clip and each episode portrays something about God. God is the one doing it, though. And that's significant. God's revealing himself. God's opening himself up so that you can see exactly who you have to deal with. He's done this already with the Exodus. And this is the foundation of this book. Um, this, uh, these, these, these sacrifices, these, uh, these social laws and things like this, these are not given to just all of humanity. These are not given to Moab or to Assyria or Babylon. These are given to those people whom God has redeemed. And so he's already provided this portrait of himself as a God that's not like any other God in the ancient world. 
And that brings us to our second, our second point of who God is here. God is holy. God is holy. The concept of holiness of God is seen in multiple places, but one of those, two, two, uh, I'll give you two episodes uh, that, that really demonstrate the holiness of God. First of all, look at Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Beginning with verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now let me explain how remarkable that, that, that setting is, first of all. In the ancient world, the standard perception of God, the, just the cultural perception of God, was that there was a level of interdependence between God and the worshiper. And so that the worshiper depended upon God to provide them crops and children and, and safety from their enemies. And then the deity would depend upon the worshiper to feed them with sacrifices, to maybe revivify them by you know, pouring water over them every morning or, or, or something like that. Uh, this was just a standard idea. What you never, ever, ever, ever saw was a deity killing their own priests. These were the people that fed them. But this is exactly what you see here. The reason is because God is not like the other gods. God is holy. This is exactly what Moses says. You would expect that right after this, Moses would look at his brother and say something like, oh man, I am so sorry. I never saw this coming. I mean, these are his nephews, right? This is Aaron's kids. So I really am sorry, but he doesn't. He, he, goes, he goes full tilt like Southern Baptist preacher on, on him. And look at Moses in verse 3. He says to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That word right there in English you can, is really the word holy. So you can say, I will be holified. I will be made holy. And before all the people, I'll be glorified. The worst possible thing that you can do when it comes to God is make him look common. Make him look common. Common deities are what you found in Pharaoh. Common deities would be what you would find going into Canaan. Common deities were all derived from political power. They were simply expressions of political power. Um, when looking back on my upbringing, I grew up in a small town, a, work, a work, blue-collar working class uh, town in Alabama. And um, uh, when looking back on my church experience, I, I, it's very easy to spot, you know, when you start thinking back in the 60s and 70s in, in Alabama, this is, uh, you know, you've seen enough movies to probably figure out the, the type of church experience I probably had. And, and, and it was simply, everything about it was simply an extension of the culture. So when we talked about God, we talked about God, interestingly enough, we would have, uh, I don't know if you did this out, out here in California, but back in the South, we had revivals planned the fall and spring. We, we, we organized the, the work of the third member of the Trinity uh, in the fall and the spring, and he would, he would of course, come to church, uh, I guess, for the first time that year and, and uh, provide us revival. And, and um, what was interesting is we would have these big banners 
on the, you know, the back of the, the, uh, um, the, the church. With some of my, uh, the, the favorite was 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. And all of those pronouns were America. That was, what they, that was what we believed. And so when we talked about God, he was distinctly American. And of course, in Alabama, he was also white. And we talked about Jesus. Jesus was equally Scandinavian. And so that this, uh, all of this was, was just simply derived out of the way that we thought about ourselves. God just simply turned out to be an extension of us. That is good, old-fashioned paganism. That's exactly what you find all throughout the ancient Near East. But not this God. This God is holy. He kills his own priest, first of all, because he does not need anyone to feed him. So, for example, Psalm 90 has this great phrase that unfortunately televangelists co-opt to rob people on fixed incomes. This is it's this great phrase. Is, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? Because I, ha- I own all the birds of the air. I own all the beasts of the field. The cattle of a thousand hills are mine. I wouldn't tell you if I was hungry. I don't need you to feed me. That's the disposition. What kind of deity does not need a priest to sustain him? It's a deity that is in and of themselves autonomous. In and of themselves holy. And there's only one. It's this God. This God is holy. He contrasts himself also, again, I'm like the, what I'm doing with him is not unique to me. I'm getting it right here from the text. Look at Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, beginning with chapter or 18, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall, do, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. God is holy. He, he conveys this as holiness uh, over in, in chapter 19, uh, where he restates what he just said in 18, but in a shorter fashion. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm holy. The holiness of God is, in fact, the core element of God. Everything else about God can be described as holy. You can't say that everything else about God can be described as loving. Very difficult to go, for example, to Deuteronomy 7, where God says to Israel, when you go into the land and you conquer all these nations that are more powerful than you, kill them all. Show them no mercy. That's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 7. That's, a, that's typically a quote that surprises the Awana kids in, the, in my classroom. It's not exactly something you want want kids to memorize, right? And say, show them no mercy, says the Lord. And then, of course, you see this uh, exercised out. It would be radically difficult to say that that type of behavior was also loving. It was a loving type of wrath that slaughtered people. People, I think that would be very confusing. But his wrath is holy. 
It's holy. His love is holy. His mercy is holy. Everything that he does is distinctly tied and uniquely tied to him, which is one of the reasons why we have such a hard time figuring it out. Because we automatically, it's, a, it's just a human thing to do. It doesn't mean anything about you if you do this, other than you're just a typical human being. The human thing to do is automatically attach all of those uh, sorts of uh, you know, emotions and uh, that Scripture writers describe to God. You ascribe them immediately to yourself before trying to process them with God. But it's just a natural thing for you to do. But God says, I'm holy. And so because of that, He's saying something about his people. This brings us to our third point and our second big uh, category, and that's Israel. Israel must be holy. Israel must be holy. That's the big point. So here's the big question, of course. What does it mean to be holy? I grew up in Alabama, and in Alabama, uh, being holy seemed to include um, a list of things that I could not do. In fact, that seemed to be all it was. Uh, and, um, and oftentimes, this was a list of things, most of which I very much wanted to do. And, uh, and so the concept of holiness was, you can't do the things you want to do, you must do the things that you should do. And, um, and this uh, you know, provided, uh, for me anyway, as a, an unsaved but very devoted church kid, it provided me, of course, a, a very thick layer of self-righteousness. That, uh, and, and it was uh, very easy to live in such a way to perceive my own morality, to sort of be my credentials to show you why uh, perhaps I was better than you, or per- perhaps why, I, um, why you should come to church with me so that you could be more like me. I never said it like that, but I don't know that I had to. I think that it was just very, very obvious. But here we see this. Holiness, and this is probably... If you remember anything at all I say today, remember this. Holiness is relational. Holiness is relational. Above all things, holiness is relational. It's rooted in the God of Israel's salvation. And so therefore, because God has this relationship with them, they now also live in a particular way that reflects the God that they have been rescued by. Um, one of the, um, it's back in, I think it was back in 2006, the New York Times was a <clears throat> movie review on a, um, a movie that was made, it was it's shown at the Sundance Film Festival, and uh, the movie was uh, one of these really, I, I've, I've always found these movies to be incredibly uh, appealing, but it's where you have multiple stories sort of operating, and they all just get just this close to one another, but they never really cross, but you, you, know, you have all these multiple stories being told at the same time, and one of the stories was about post-war Vietnam in the 70s, and it was about a, a rickshaw driver uh, named uh, Han, and um, uh, a prostitute named Luol. And um, Han, uh, his great dream was uh, to, uh, he was in love with Luol, and so he's to have her. And Luol's great dream was to live like the men that she serviced at these hotels that were prominent in Vietnam. Um, so in the middle of the movie, there's this rickshaw driving contest. I had no idea such a thing existed, but, but it's a rickshaw driving contest, and Han wins the contest. And so he gets all this money. 
And so you can imagine what he does with it, right? He, 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 uh, he gets a room at one of these high-end hotels, gets the penthouse uh, suite, and he goes to Luan and says, I want you up there uh, in the t- uh, tonight. Um, you're, you're, the, you're the reward for my efforts. And of course, this is Sundance Film Festival, so we all think that the next thing that's going to happen is a seedy you know, kind of scene. It's so shocking to find out that that's not what happens at all. As Lua gets up there, Han says to her, I don't want to go to bed with you. I just want to, you to enjoy all of this, everything you want, any room service you want, and I just want to be able to watch you go to sleep, and I'll leave you alone. And he does. The, the reviewer, a purely, purely pagan guy in the New York Times, he reflects on the movie and he says, Han went back to his work as a rickshaw driver. He said, but Lua was never the same. Something in her snapped because she had never had someone who had all authority and power over her use that authority and power to love her. She had never had that. And, one, and the guy says, once you receive this type of love, you can never be the same again. And Lua could not go back to prostitution. Because all of a sudden she had tasted what it was like to be loved. That's what I think the concept of holiness is supposed to be like. If you think about Israel itself, this is a group of people who they only know themselves to be slaves. And they have just been redeemed from the superpower of the ancient Near East in the latter part of the first millennium by a God, by, by, by a singular God that no one had encountered in their world. And he comes onto the stage in spectacular fashion and pulls the superpower apart like warm bread right in front of everyone. So much so that later on, people like Rahab and Jericho and the Philistines and Aphek and, and, Je- and Joshua and 1 Samuel respectively, they know the story of Egypt. They know that this is God that is attached to this group of people and he is not to be trifled with. He is dangerous upon dangerous because this is what he did to Egypt. He devastated them. In fact, historically, they've never been a world superpower since that time. This God has done all of this to fulfill promises to their fathers, to be good to them, to draw them to himself. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, he says, I brought you, talking about coming to Sinai, I brought you to myself like a, a, a mother eagle, right? Brings her chicks to wink, and, and I sheltered you. And, and, and he calls them a holy nation. Jewish uh, ethicist, um, um, Jeremiah Unterman said, there is no precedent at all anywhere in the ancient Near East for a single deity to adapt a singular people to himself and then make all of them priests. But by making all of them holy 
a holy nation and priest, he is making this group of people a group of people that their existence and their social shape will testify to the reality of this God. Holiness is relational. Holiness is also ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Do your best when you notes. Uh, and um, UBI, I don't even know I can spell it. U-B-I-Q-U-I-T-U-S. Uh, and so ubiquitous, which simply means this. It's all over the place. Ubiquitous means it infects everything. It infects is probably a bad verb. But it, but, but it, it, it permeates everything. So, for example, again, when I was a kid, we were given these instructions, you know, of not to do things. And it was intriguing now, looking back on it, how half the things that were on the list I was told not to do are not in the Bible. Another, like maybe third of the things, are actually given the green light in the Bible. They're okay in the Bible. And yet, but in Alabama, these things were not okay. Apparently, we had out-sanctified the Scriptures to some level. And so, we, 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 we created these lists. Listen to this. This was not on my list when I was a kid. Um, you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Verse 2. This one was on the list. Here we go. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. My, my, my church believed in Sabbath keeping, but it was Sunday rather than Friday sundown. It was Saturday sundown. And it was a weird type of Sabbath keeping. It was we're not going to do anything, but we don't mind going to a restaurant and being rude to people who are doing other things. And, and so it was, it was that kind of thing. It was a really strange uh, complicated and confusing kind of thing. Here's, here's something I never saw. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gl- gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord. Caring for the poor and the marginalized was not perceived to be holy where I grew up. But it is here. And keep on going. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. This is, I mean, it sounds like a, it, that sounds like just a pedestrian type of thing you tell people. But this is actually business ethics. You shall not do this. Business ethics. Um, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. You, you shall not use God's name in this sort of economic situation just simply to get your way and render God's name as common. Profane, we, we have in, in English, we use profane to mean dirty or something like that. But profane here in this text means common. It's the opposite of holy. Holy and common. And so common is the thing you do not want to render God into being. Nadab and Avihu would tell you that if they could. But this is, this is something you can do. Verse 11, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant will not remain with you until, uh, uh, all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall not, in verse night, uh, 15 rather, you shall do no injustice in court. You've got here economic ethics, business ethics, judicial ethics, dealing with the disabled, dealing with the elderly. All of these things are aspects of holiness. In other words, holiness is this social shape to Israel that the people of Israel are now shaped as a public testimony that the God that is at their center is radically different from the gods of the nations. The gods of the nations, again, are simply 
derived from political power, from ethnicity, from nationality. And so therefore, you have a social structure that reflects that, haves and the have-nots. And of course, Israel gets there really quickly. And the core idea, the core problem for Israel is not that they have this social problem, but the social problem yields the real problem, which is they have totally forgotten God. They have no concept of God at their center. And this just goes on and on throughout Leviticus. Of course, Leviticus 18 and 20 highlight all the vast array of sexual sins and things like that. And it provides a narrow sexual ethic for Israel. And so you have sexual ethics, social ethics, liturgical ethics, judicial ethics, economic ethics, business ethics. All of these things are bound up. And this is holy. Holiness is this social testimony. A Redeemer, we uh, started talking a long time ago about wanting to be a fishbowl community, a community that people could look in on and see something radically different. In 2020, this became even more prominent for us when we, um, we made decisions uh, that, that chased a bunch of people off, but they were decisions that we knew were integral to our identity as this type of community. A type of community whose social testimony bore witness to a radically unique God. A God that was not attached to a political party. A God that was not attached to a nation or to an ethnicity. But in and of himself provided us with our own identity and mission. That's significant. Holy. Israel is to be holy. Holiness is relational. Holiness is ubiquitous. It's supposed, to, it's supposed to define everything about you. Interestingly enough, what you see in the rest of the Old Testament is Israel abandoning this. Like, for example, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, if you've ever read Isaiah chapter 1, you would think that uh, Isaiah was actually reading Leviticus while he's writing this text. Beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, good Bible readers out there, you'll know that that's a strange thing to call someone since Sodom and Gomorrah haven't been around for quite some time. Genesis 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're talking thousands of years at this point. This is the 8th century BC. But Sodom and Gomorrah is what God is calling Judah. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what your upbringing was like. But when I heard my full name, I knew that I was in trouble. And I heard my full name routinely. I was, I was a two, maybe three spanking a day kid. Uh, yeah, there for, for, for most of, my, most of my childhood. And, um, and, and it would always be prefaced, particularly if it was my mother. My, my dad was a man of few words. And so it was, it, it, there was more of a, a command. And then you just knew you were toast because of the tone of his voice. Um, but uh, with my mom, it, there, was a, there, there was an open, formal, legal declaration that began with my name, the entire name, and then the charges. There was no, there was no opportunity for, for appeal or for prosecutorial, uh, you know, to, to argue against the prosecution. I was just simply guilty. And, um, 
And sometimes this was not true, but most of the time, 99% of the time, it was true. And then there were times that she missed, and so I never really complained. Even she, um, and so, but here, you've got to know that if you're Judah, and the, and the prophetic word comes to you and, des, and, and it's designed and calls you Sodom and Gomorrah, everything about what's about to be said has got to be bad. What's really remarkable for what we've been reading is it sounds just like what we've been reading. Listen to this. Beginning with verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Now, you can only imagine that if you're a good you know, Torah reader in the 8th century, you would say, well, I mean, you. You required it, right? I mean, you, I mean Leviticus, right? you required it. But God goes on to explain himself. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. And then he breaks from, the, from, from that stream of thought and he says this, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. And then he goes right back. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates they become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands before me, which is the way you pray in the ancient world, I know that we teach our kids to fold their hands and close their eyes and bow their head, but in the ancient world, you'd have opened your hands, you'd have looked up to heaven with your eyes wide open. The idea of closing your eyes would have probably been a bit strange to them. You hold, when you hold out your hands before me, I will not listen. I'll hide my eyes from you, rather. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. He's talking to his people. And then he says this, Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That's, where he, that's, the, that's, the, that's the critique. Your worship makes no sense to me. Because of your ethics. Your ethics robs your worship of any real meaning. Um, this kind of... Um, this kind of... Uh, we, we feel this tension like if we maybe look back a bit. I've always found that people in California feel safe critiquing my upbringing in Alabama. So I always use stories of upbringing in Alabama. You can you figure out how it applies to you. My, uh, my dad was an outspoken opponent of the Ku Klux Klan. My grandfather was a member. And um, what's unique is my grandfather was also the minister of music in his church. See, it's easy for California. It's, like, it's a horrible guy. You're right. My grandfather was one of the worst people I've ever met in my life. Um, so every Sunday, my grandfather stands up and he leads a congregation in hymns. My grandfather was ridiculously talented. He played like, I think, 15 or 16 different musical instruments, had a brilliant memory, was just rank. Of course, more to the point, it is categorically impossible to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan and be a Christian. 
And so there he was. All of his ethics robbed any kind of actual testimony that he was saying, which is why my, my dad had no interest in Christianity all throughout his growing up years. Because in his mind, it was just the religion of the clan. This is what Isaiah is saying. Your hands are full of blood. You are inundated with injustice and oppression. You don't even view the fatherless and the widow as objects of pity, but objects to be objectified and used. And you think that you're going to worship, stand in front of me and offer me a sacrifice, and that's going to make any difference? Your sacrifices don't make any difference to me. Jeremiah says the same thing in chapter 7. Again, reflecting on this connection that ethics and worship have. In chapter 7, Jeremiah says this. He tells, uh, God tells Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the temple. Speak these words in the temple so that they get the, the, the tension. Beginning in verse 3, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? It's a remarkable statement by the prophet. The prophet understands what it is to be holy. He understands that there is an inextricable bond between worship and ethics, and that bond has to be acknowledged. How do we get to the gospel from here? A couple of ways. First of all, if you read on through the Old Testament, you'll notice that Israel fails miserably at everything they're instructed to do in Leviticus. Even when they are doing their new moons and Sabbaths, it doesn't matter because they falter so badly when this demand to be a shape of people that reflect the reality of God. In, in refusing to live that way, they also basically say, we don't really believe you're as holy as you're suggesting. We must say, You've got to be common. We know, we all know what God's like. It can't be what you're like. That's exactly what they do. In fact, when you get to the book of Ezekiel, there are other gods, other deities in the actual temple. They falter. When you get to the New Testament, I believe that if you ask New Testament writers, who is Israel? They will look at you and say, Jesus is Israel. Here is the real Israel. You see this most clearly in the book of Matthew. That not only attributes Jesus as son of Abraham, son of David, who functioned both as Israel and the, in the Old Testament, uniquely called both the son of God. Exodus chapter 4, Israel is the son of God. 2 Samuel 7, the son of David is the son of God. And here in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus becomes the culmination of all of those things. But not only that, but all the way through the rest of the book 
the opening of the book of Matthew, Jesus mimics everything that you see Israel doing in the, the Torah. Jesus goes into Egypt, and then he calls Jesus out of Egypt. He goes through the water into the desert for 40 days rather than 40 years. He goes out of the desert into the land. And this time, instead of failing miserably, this Israel, this Israel succeeds at everything. This Israel really is the Holy One embodied. This Israel is, in fact, the God of Israel in the flesh. Holiness and its absolute alien nature to us should probably point us to the fact that we desperately need someone to rescue us. If you have any self-awareness, you have to know that you have fallen short, deeply short, of even your own moral standards. And that, that is not innocent. That is because you, just like Old Testament Israel, you know what God is. And you long for that God to be more like you rather than the reciprocal. But you need to be rescued from you. Jesus comes to do that. And in doing so, he creates a people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God so that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. How do you declare those excellencies? You declare it by speaking the gospel clearly, and you declare it by living the gospel sincerely. Speaking the gospel clearly, living the gospel sincerely. Christians are supposed to, I, I think Christians are supposed to be politically involved with wherever they're at. I have good friends who live in the UK, and my daughter and her husband live in uh, South, Southeast Asia. I expect them to be involved socially, politically. But we're never supposed to be owned by those things. In fact, one of the things that, that's so obvious and demanding about the New Testament is that you, for the first time in history, you have this supra-ethnic group of people all oriented around this one individual, Jesus. They would never be friends otherwise, but now they are. But it doesn't change who they are. The disciples, for example, you've got um, Matthew, who's a tax collector, very pro-Rome. And it never, there's never any indication that that Matthew becomes anti-Rome. And then you've got Simon the Zealot, clearly anti-Rome. He used to walk around poking people who were pro-Rome with daggers. And, it's, uh, and there's no indication that he ever changes those. But here they are following Jesus together. Jesus demands, as king, because kings don't do competition, Jesus demands that you be prepared to be a traitor to everything. And everyone, because of how good he is, all authority in heaven and earth given, and he uses all of that authority to rescue you. There is nothing to hold on to. There is no reason to cling to some 
sort of self-derived identity or some ethnicity or some nationality. Jesus becomes the core element of identity because Jesus is holy. Everyone he calls is holy. Everyone who is found in him is holy. Everything about Leviticus screams that we need another Israel to rescue us. This one won't do it. Everything about Leviticus screams that the people of God are supposed to be shaped preeminently by relationship, but they're also supposed to be testifying ubiquitously. Every aspect of their life is pervasively reflects the reality of this God. So how do we do that? That would be a great thing to talk about over lunch. How do you do that? How, does, how do we do that now? How are we not doing that? When was the last time I spoke the gospel clearly to someone? Do I even know it, to speak it? Cliff would be more than happy to talk to you about how to share the gospel with people. Do I live the gospel out, or have I conflated the gospel with some version of Americana? Republican politics, or democratic politics, or being American, or being white, or being black, or being Asian, or being Latino. Was, I mean, what, what, is the, what is the thing that I have most obviously conflated this with? How do I live in such a way that declares to the watching world that my hope alone is in Jesus? I love all these other things. I enjoy all these other things. I enjoy the world around me. But my hope alone is in Jesus. My loyalty is supremely to Jesus. Leviticus, more than any other book I think in the Old Testament, demands and lays the, the platform for us to understand that. And I hope that by God's grace we can. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you and I thank you so much for these brothers and sisters and ask that you would encourage them by your spirit, by the power of your good word that you've given to us. I pray, Father, that you would make much of yourself in their lives, that their lives would testify both verbally and actively as well as passively and visually and tangibly to their children and their grandchildren, to their neighbors, to their friends, their co-workers, people they go to school with, that there's something radically unique and real about you that no other claim to deity has. You are uniquely God, holy, holy above all things. And you've made us that way as well. Not meritoriously, not because we've done anything at all to deserve such treatment and such love. But that love has changed us. And I pray that that would be a very strong testimony to the watching world around us. In the name of Christ, amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Would you go and stand with us?